I got to tell you, that video holds a special place in my heart because about 15 years ago, uh, when I was still playing sports, I was running on the treadmill all the time. And so we had a treadmill in our house and I had it ramped up to like seven, eight miles an hour. I was running all the time. And my aunt comes over at Christmas time. Oh, I need to go. I need to exercise after that big meal. Joking around. Turns it on. Boom. Right off the back. Greatest day of my life. I just want to share that. All right. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the benefits of working out. And so if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to talk about working out a little bit of a, of a different way. And so uh, before, we, before we get there in the text, hey, let's play a little game of, of who am I? See, see if you can guess who this is, okay? And we're heading into election week, so this will be a political figure. So just give you a little, little hint there, all right? In 1831, he failed in a business venture. In 1832, he was defeated as a candidate for the state legislature. In 1833, he failed once again in another business venture. In 1835, his fiancée died, shattering him. In 1836, he suffered a nervous breakdown. In 1843, he was defeated as a candidate for the U.S. Congress. In 1848, he once again was defeated as a candidate for the U.S. Congress. In 1855, he was defeated as a candidate for the U.S. Senate. In 1856, he was defeated as a candidate for U.S. Vice President. In 1859, he once again was defeated as a candidate for the U.S. Senate, but in 1860, he was elected the 16th president of the United States of America. If you know who it is, shout out. It was? Exactly. I, I love that story. What an incredible story of feeling like that, that you're called to make a difference, that you're called to have impact, and despite all the challenges and turmoils that you face, all the setbacks, you continue to work out that calling. You continue to persevere and move forward because you believe that it's God's plan for your life and impacting other people. Well, as I told you earlier, we're going to look this morning in Philippians chapter 2 about the benefits of working out because Paul has been waxing eloquent on what it looks like, the example of Jesus Christ. And then he turns in verse 12 in chapter 2 and says, hey, now listen. You're to be working out your salvation. This is what that looks like, and this is why it's important, and this is what that means. And so let's look this morning in a Philippians chapter 2, and a message entitled, The Benefits of Working Out. Now, my Bible's a little torn here on the side, so if I miss some of the words, I'm not reading from the wrong perversion. I just got a little tear in my Bible, okay? So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not also in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do good for his pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. There's that word over and over again, joy or rejoice over and over again. We see in the text. That's why we titled the series Blueprint to Joy. And then in verse 18, he says, for the same reason, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so he kind of makes this transition. He says, hey, in, a, in a ch chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, this is the model of Jesus Christ. And because of that model, you should be doing some things. And so he says we're called to some things. We're going to look at some principles here in this passage about what we're called to, about working out our salvation. 
And he gives some very clear directives and he gives a little bit of this warning in advance. He gives some challenging statements. So I'm going to challenge you this morning from the word of God, all right? Because I was challenged when I was reading and studying out this week and just kind of holding up the mirror of Scripture in my own life and say, does your life look like that? Is that, is that? Are you living that out or are you just going to preach it this weekend? And so in looking at this passage, the things we find we're called to is we're called to work it out practically. First and foremost, work it out practically. Now, you've heard me say this uh, maybe hundreds of times. Uh, But the key to understanding a text is to understand the context of what it's written in. And for those of you who are committed to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, any time that we see the word work out and the word salvation in the same verse there in verse 12, it makes us a little bit nervous, right? I mean, it it sounds off the legalism alarm because we're like, hey, listen, salvation's by grace. And so yet he's telling us we need to work out our salvation. And so what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that, that, that there's something that salvation is works based or it's a mixture of faith and works or or grace gets it started? But to keep it intact, I've got to do my, my part after God does his part. And so what does that mean there in verse 12? What exactly is what he's all talking about? Well, let's look back at verse 12 and read it again. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, not only my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, verse 12 starts off with the word therefore. Let me just give you a general rule of Bible study. You've heard me say this before. Anytime you see in Scripture the word therefore, you've got to ask a question. What's it there for? What's it referring to? What's in front of that that he's saying, hey, as a result of all of these things, therefore your life should look like this. What's it referring to? I want you to go all the way back to chapter 1 and look at verse 27. You see, the context of this passage is not the example of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's just another overflow. The context is not the call to live out humility in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The context for verse 12 is set all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27. And if I don't understand the context of what he's talking about, guess what? Then when he tells me to work out my salvation, I could walk away from that and say, hey, salvation is by works or it's kept by works or, or it, you know, I could lose it. I could walk down the road and turn around. And my salvation fell off. And, you know, how does that how does that work? Right. And so the context that he's setting back, the therefore he's referring back to is all the way back in chapter one and verse 27. Look what he says there in chapter one, verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And everything from that point forward all the way down to verse 18 is the overflow of what it looks like for your conduct to be worthy of Jesus Christ. You're to be faithful, verses 27 through 30 in chapter 1. You're to live with humility, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You're to follow the example and have the same mind that was in Jesus Christ of humility, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And therefore, as a result of all of those things, you should be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You say, I don't know if that's the context or not. Let let, let me read verse 27 again. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this part. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, and I hear of your affairs, you stand together in one spirit, whether I'm there or not. Now look look at chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You, You see the parallel there? Whether I'm there or not, your life, there's consistency. There is spiritual integrity taking place, and this is what it should look like. All right. So that's the context of chapter two, uh, verse 12. And so the idea of continue working out your salvation, it's not working it out because in the end it may fail. Listen, it's not it's not working out so that God does his part and then you do your part so you can keep that thing secure. So at the end, you know that your salvation is secure. 
The idea of working out your salvation is not working for it. It's living it out. It's working in such a way that gives continual confirmation that you truly are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it's not working for your salvation with fear and trembling. It's because you're saved, living that out with fear and trembling. Now, the word fear there is also the idea in the original language. It's the idea of reverence. It's the idea that when, it, when the call comes in here to work out my own salvation, to, to confirm that the Spirit of God lives inside me, that there is a holy reverence about it. There is a seriousness about this when I'm pursuing this call to live worthy of the conduct of a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing here and he's challenging to work out your salvation practically. He's saying, hey, listen, demonstrate this thing. It's not enough just to say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but you would never know it by looking at my life. There's very little evidence if I ever got on trial for being a believer, there's very little evidence that would convict me of being a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, no, 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 that's not the pattern here. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, chapter one, verse 27, and live this way. Therefore, as a result of that command, you'll be working out your salvation with reverence and fear and trembling is what he's saying there. Now, I can't tell you how many times that I've had this conversation with someone. I've been doing this for, for 11 years. I did youth ministry for about a year. It was the worst year of those kids' lives. And then God called me into a different ministry, right? But I can't tell you how many times in that, that period of time that someone has come along to me and said, you know what, I'm in a profession of faith at a young age, but I've had these doubts. and I've been struggling with this for a long time. I don't know if I really belong to Jesus Christ or not. That when the Bible talks about working out my salvation with, with fear and trembling, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so fearful. I, I just don't know if I belong to Jesus Christ. And, and I don't know, you know, was it legit? Was I really converted? If I was converted, why would I do these things? And listen, I've had that conversation over and over and over. I remember being a student at Liberty University and campus pastor said this. He said, you know, when I became the campus pastor at the largest Christian university in the country, he said, I figured that most of the questions I would get were like philosophical in nature. You know, hey, hey, pastor, can you help me reconcile uh, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God? Hey, pastor, can, can you tell me the, uh, who, who was riding on the, the fourth horseman in the apocalypse, right? Can you tell me if Jesus Christ is coming back and the timing and what the, all those kind of things? He said the number one question I got as a campus pastor was this. How can I know for sure that I'm really saved? How can I know for sure that I belong to Jesus Christ? Let me give you two biblical assurances of salvation that when you're demonstrating the fact or working out your salvation, not to earn it, but to show that you belong to Jesus Christ. Let me give you two things to be looking for to confirm your salvation in Jesus Christ as you're working it out. Number one is this. It's enduring faith, enduring faith. Jesus said this. He who endures to the end will be saved. And there are all kinds of people. They start off like a rocket, but they end up like a rock. Just shh. No enduring faith. Some trial came along. They denounced Jesus Christ. Life didn't turn out how they wanted. They denounced Jesus Christ. Something, some intellectual question they couldn't solve. Denounced Jesus Christ. Dr. Adrian Rogers used to refer to people like this as Alka-Seltzer converts. He said, you drop them in the water, they fizz a little bit. But in the end, they just leave you with a headache. And he also used to say this. He said, the faith that falters before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. Say that ten times, right? And so all of us are going to struggle. All of us are going to have seasons where we're waxing and waning in our commitment to Jesus Christ. But in the end, if it's genuine faith, it will be an enduring faith in Jesus Christ. The second biblical assurance of salvation is this. It's producing fruit. It's producing fruit. Now, the Bible says this. The Bible talks about bearing little fruit and much fruit 
and more fruit. Not any point in the scripture does the Bible ever talk about a person who bears no fruit. There is no such thing. And so if I'm planted in the soil of Jesus Christ genuinely, then one of the things that should confirm my salvation as I'm working it out, getting evidence of it, is that I'm producing fruit. What does the Bible talk about? Romans chapter 1 talks about the fruit of winning souls to Christ. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is growth in holiness. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the fruit of worship. There's just this growing desire inside of me to worship, and nothing stirs my heart like worship. Even when they pick the songs that I don't like, it still stirs me up to worship Jesus Christ, and there's nothing like it. It's the fruit of worship the Bible talks about. And so as he's talking about this idea of working out your salvation practically, he's saying give evidence of it. You're not working for it, but you're living it out in confirmation that you belong to Jesus Christ. If you're going to conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Reverence doesn't mean a militant, always serious fleshing out of our faith. Listen, working out your salvation, there's liberty. Listen, if you want to dress up in a baby outfit and walk around in front of thousands of people, then God be praised. Amen. I just got to tell you this. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I just feel led to share it. And it's easy to ask Forgiveness and permission. So I put on that baby outfit and my assistant who supports me loyally, she persistently asked me all night. <laughs> Thank you for that gift back there. She said, why don't you get like some marker, some pudding and put it on the back of that diaper? That'd be great. I said, no, that won't be great. I said, I'm dignified. She said, really? So it's not just this, you know, I, I'm, I'm serious all the time because I want to prove my faith and I'm, I'm militant about it and I'm rigid because I'm working out my salvation with a reverence about it. No, no, no. The balance of that is found in verse 14 where he says, work it out practically. But number two, work it out joyfully. Now, I have a fundamental conviction in my life and I try to honor it. I don't think anyone should laugh more than a believer. That I think actually there should be times where you smile. But I think it's sometimes we need to sing, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face, right? That there should be joy and laughter because even in the difficult seasons, I can look back and be content knowing that if God allowed it to pass through his fingertips, there's a purpose in that pain and God will get glory because of it. I think we have too many Eeyores in the body of Christ. Amen. People who think that their primary spiritual gift is discouragement and they want to share it with anyone they come into contact with. Have you been around anyone like that? If you're sitting next to someone, would, no, don't, don't, don't do that, right? But this whole idea, you know, just, oh, I'm saved. Thank God for it. Really? Work it out joyfully. And I have so little margin for habitually cranky, grumpy, joyless Christians when Paul said, hey, listen, in everything, count it joy. You say, where do you get that from? Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, do all things. Now, I looked that up in the original language and it meant all things. All right. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? What about all things? Yeah, but what about all things? I'm going to go to work tomorrow and I bought list all things, my kids, all things. All right. 
Now, if there's anyone who had ever had a right to look back and God goes, you know what, listen, uh, you've got a right to complain. It would have been the Apostle Paul. Let me give you a little biographical sketch up to Paul at this point in time. Uh, ever since his conversion from Phariseeism to Christianity, he'd been hounded and opposed by unbelieving Jews. They just tormented him. There, there was a fact that the Gentile businessmen were angry at him right before this because they cast a demon out of a girl and they were making money because she was prophesying in, in demonic way. And so they were angry about it. After that, Paul collected a generous gift from Gentile churches, took it up to the saints in Jerusalem. While he's there, he sponsored several young men who took their offering to the temple for sacrifice. And while he was there, a group of Jews falsely accused him of bringing Gentiles into the forbidden area of the temple, drug him before Caesar. So if there's any person at all who would have said, you know what, I've got a bum rack, I've been wrecked, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've been falsely accused, I've been on house arrest unfairly. If there was anyone who could lay claim to that, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he said, do everything without what? Without complaining or disputing and everything rejoice. The word for complaining in the original language refers to the guttural muttering sounds people often make when they're disgruntled. You know, that. listen, I never talked with my teeth clenched until I had kids. You understand what I'm preaching this morning? I will wear you out. I, I will. Right. And you, you, you just, you know, tell them over and just that. There's no words for it. That's the original word of complaining there. It's just this guttural kind of moaning that I'm so grieved in my spirit that I can't even form words. Let me tell you what the root of that is. It's pride. You see, because the reason I complain and grumble is because I have an elevated view of myself and I think that other people owe me something and that God deserves me to give me all these things that I want in my life. And if I don't get those things, then I'm incensed to the point where I'm just grumbling and complaining all the time. You see what humility says? Humility says, God, whatever you bring my way, I deserve it and so much more. But God, in your grace, you've given me a way of escape of temptation. God, in your grace, you've allowed a purpose in this trial. God, in your grace, if you've called me to it, you'll enable me to walk through it. God, in your grace, I don't deserve any of it. But the root of a person that grumbles and complains all the time is the idea that people are there to serve them. The idea that God owes me this type of life. And if I don't get that and the people don't respond how I want to, then listen, you're going to hear it from me all the days of your life. And so it is pride. One commentator said this about grumbling. That was a great statement. He said, grumbling reveals a basic unbelief. It shows they don't really believe the trials of their life are sent of the Lord, and they don't really believe that he is adequate to meet every situation, so they grumble and complain. They're not really expecting him to work, otherwise they wouldn't be murmuring, grumbling, and disputing one another. Now listen, my experience is this, in my own life, that we take that, we make it a trivial sin, and we just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, listen, everybody complains a little bit. Everybody gets a little disenfranchised, Right? Everybody understands what it's like to try and raise kids and a marriage and a job and all this. And everybody gets there, right? Listen, it's not getting there. It's the person that lives there and defends it. All right, that's what he's describing here. This is the person who habitually, whose life is dominated by the bad rap. Like, oh, if I would have got that promotion, if I could have gotten that school, and if my wife would have done this, and if my kids would have turned out this way, and if that health trial wouldn't have came into my life, and if that recession would have happened right at this point in my career, my life would be so much different. They live with folded hands and closed hearts and angry words. 
It's a huge deal. You say, how big of a deal? Let's keep reading here. Look at verse 15. Look, let's back up to verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that the witness of Christ in the work of the gospel is hindered around those who don't know Jesus Christ when they sit back all the time and hear you complaining and complaining and complaining. As a result of that, when you tell them the joy of following Jesus, they just sit back and go, dude, are you serious? Have you heard yourself? I work next to you. I live next to you. I sleep next to you. I sleep down the hall from you. Are you serious? Following Jesus brings joy. You see what he said there? That in a crooked and perverse generation, that if my life is dominated by grumbling and complaining and bitterness, that's all that comes out of my life, then guess what? I won't live my life as blameless before those who don't know Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they'll sit back and shake their finger and go, see, listen, when the going got tough, you're no different than me, man. You just get up and go to church occasionally, but you're no different than me. He says it's hurting the cause of Christ. And so Paul's saying that the Philippians want to be an effective witness for Christ, then guess what? They're going to have to start quit complaining and arguing amongst each other and before the Lord. Let me let you know a little secret. That principle has not changed in 2,000 years. You see, if we tell people that Jesus loves them, but we behave as if uh, we hate each other's guts, then guess what? They're looking at you going, hypocrite. We teach them that following Jesus is a life of joy and it's a life that even when hard times come, He gives us strength and so we can walk through with a deep reservoir of joy. But all that ever comes out of your mouth is grumbling and complaining. You know what they're saying? Hypocrite. Totally turned off by that. And so if I ask you this morning, if you wanted to be a light in a dark world as a Christian, your response would be amen. Correct? Let's try it. Do you want to be light in a dark world? What's your response? Look at verse 16. Remember the context. Verse 14. Don't grumble. Why? Verse 16. I'm sorry. Verse 15. Back up. That you're blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see that? That a life of grumbling and complaining diminishes my ability to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of the world around me. And if I ask you that you wanted to live your life in such a way that you would be blameless and harmless in a perverse generation, you would say what? Yeah, two of you would say amen, but the rest of you would say what? Amen. What does it say in verse 15? Listen, if you want to live that way, then don't spend your life complaining and grumbling. Verse 14, did you see what a big deal it is? That actually impacts the work of Christ, that actually diminishes the influence of the gospel in the culture that God has placed you in. One writer said this. The opposite of grumbling is gratitude. And I love this, what he said. He said, gratitude is a tangible response to the grace of God. Gratitude is a tangible response to the grace of God. And grumbling is your admission that you feel God has not extended grace to you, that you deserve better than what God has allowed to come into your life. Do you see the pride in that? And so he says, work out your salvation practically. This is number two. But when you do that, make sure you work it out joyfully. And then lastly, he also says that when you work out your salvation, make sure that you work it out completely. You work it out completely. And what do you find that out? Look at verse 16. 
He says, holding fast the word of life. Why? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. And then verse 17. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, what is a drink offering? In the Old Testament, the Jews would stand before the altar and offer an animal sacrifice. They're symbolic of the payment that one day Christ would make. And so they would make that sacrifice, and that was the main sacrifice. But sometimes, to kind of take it up a notch, they would also come along and accentuate that by pouring wine or honey or oil on top of that animal sacrifice. And that was the drink offering they would pour out. And it was a sign of completely pouring out, of completely spending everything before the Lord. Now, is Paul talking about the future knowing he's going to be martyred? I mean, is Paul saying, hey, listen, one day I'm pouring my life out as a drink offering and, and one day it'll be totally spent because I'm going to be martyred. Is that what he's talking about here? No, no, no. He's not talking about his death because this, this uh, is in the present tense. What he's talking about is in the present tense that he's writing. He's living his life, pouring out his life for the sake of others, including these Philippian believers. Now, now here, here's the challenge there. That's not Paul's call alone. That the call of God on your life and the call of God on your life and the call of God on your life is to pour out your life on behalf of others and the gospel. It's to live in such a way that you're totally spent as a drink offering, totally poured out. Let me, let me give you the Cunningham paraphrase of what that means. Don't you dare coast. Don't, don't you dare sit back and wonder what could have been. You know, the most painful thing in all the world It's to live with regret. It's to look back one day and say, oh, what could I have done if I were surrendered to Christ? What could I have done if I were coasting on the heels of my salvation under the banner of grace? So the blueprint for joy is discovered when you come to the place that joy is achieved, not by hoarding up life, but by pouring out your life on behalf of others. That's when joy comes. And Paul didn't regret for one moment. He modeled Jesus in Hebrews. It says of Jesus it says this for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Let me read that again. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, what kept Christ moving forward? It's interesting in the pictures of the Gospels, when Jesus is marching to Calvary, he's not in the back, he's in the front. Leading the charge. And what kept him stepping forward? Was it a superficial uh, emotional state? Matter of fact, he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What kept him moving forward? It was the joy set before him, knowing that in his sacrificial atoning work on the cross that we could be redeemed and reconciled to a holy God despite our sin. That's the joy set before him. He would pour his life out on our behalf. Work out your salvation completely. Now, I'm going to lean into you a little bit this morning, all right? Some of you here this morning are coasting, and you know it. Matter of fact, some of you would give testimony that it's been a long time since you've been on fire for Jesus Christ. Some of you, if you got honest this morning, would say this, you know what, my greatest passion isn't reserved for Jesus Christ. My greatest passion, when I look at my calendar and my checkbook, my greatest passion is for some hobby. 
Don't reserve your greatest passion for some hobby. Don't reserve your greatest passion for your work. Don't reserve your greatest passion for your kid's sports career. Don't reserve your greatest passion for politics. Listen, as we enter this week of election, if people know who you're voting for, but they don't know who you belong to, then you have dropped the ball, follower of Jesus Christ. Don't reserve your greatest passion for the things that are not eternal. Don't you dare coast. But some of you are there, and when you hear about a ministry or a mission trip, you don't even pray about it. You have no appetite for the Word of God or the work of God outside of Sunday morning. You haven't memorized a verse since you were a cubby and a wanna. And for some of you, that's a long time ago, all right? The only way that you on your current trajectory are going to be end up poured out as a drink offering is if someone come along and knocks you over. Listen, don't waste your life on things that will not matter a hundred years from now. Don't spend your life on things that don't count. Invest your life in the things that will outlast it. And according to the Word of God, the only two things that will endure forever are people and the Word of God. So that's where you're going to pour out your life at. The Word of God and the people God is placing your circle of influence. Some people just want to look, you know what, listen, I want to go to heaven and, and I want to come to church and get some practical moral living, you know, kind of to help me get through life because life is hard. But this whole idea of surrendering my life to Jesus Christ, I mean, letting Him and His words and His teachings govern my marriage, my finances, my politics, my, my parenting, how I behave in my workplace, I don't know that I'm really ready for that kind of, of a commitment. Then, then listen, if that's the story of your life, I mean habitually, since you profess Jesus Christ, but He doesn't enter any other place of your life, then hear me this morning, you need to get saved. Because there is no such thing as salvation apart from surrender. And for some of you, you have genuinely accepted Christ. And there was a time when you were red hot for Jesus. I mean, there was a time when you were on fire for Jesus Christ and everyone around you knew it. I heard a preacher say this uh, this week. He said one of, the, one of the greatest compliments I ever got is I was in a conference. And there was lots of guys with lots of degrees. And he said, I've never been a smart guy, said, but I've just always been red hot for Jesus Christ. And, and he said, the guy got up and introduced me and said, hey, this guy doesn't have a lot of degrees, but he is ignorance on fire. He said for, for a minute, I had to pause and think that, that was a compliment. All right. He said, he is ignorance on fire. And he said, but I'd rather be ignorance on fire than intellectualism on ice. You know, the people who make a difference in the world, it's the people of passion. It's the people who are motivated to a cause that is greater than them. And there is not a greater cause than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't coast. Work it out completely. Live your life as a drink offering spilled out on the altar of the Lord for the sake of others. Some of you look back and you say, oh, it used to be that way, but something happened. Some of you can put your finger on the calendar. It was that divorce. It was that diagnosis. It was that job loss. It was that broken relationship. It was those people at that church. Can I tell you this morning that I understand all those things, but hear me this morning. You're as close to Lord Jesus Christ as you want to be this morning. 
Listen, he's not sitting there like this. Oh, oh, he's like this. And Paul didn't say he was strolling along towards the finish line. We'll find out later in Philippians. Paul said, I'm pressing towards the mark. The high calling of Jesus Christ. You know that word pressing toward the mark? It's the imagery of a person straining ahead at the finish line. You say, I don't, you know, I might be there. I don't know. Let me give you a warning sign. Let me give you a warning sign that you're coasting. The only God stories you have are historical in nature. Oh, I remember that one time when I heard that sermon and man, God just stirred me up and I made that commitment. I remember that one time I went on that mission trip. I remember that one time that revival came in my heart in our church. I remember that one time where God used me to influence that other person. I remember that one time. Listen, if your only God stories are historical in nature, there's a chance you're coasting. You see, here's the conviction you should live with. That your most exciting times serving the Lord should not be in the rearview mirror, but rather should be out the windshield. Let me say that again, because that's a good place for an amen and you missed it. The most exciting times of serving the Lord should not be in the rearview mirror, but rather should be looking out the windshield. Got a golf clap, but I'm going to take it. I love the words of an old country preacher who said this. He said, I want to go to heaven with my tongue hanging out and my pockets empty. Amen. And that's what I want for my life. And that's what I want for your life. Because it's the only thing worth pouring your life out for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else pales in comparison. God can take an ordinary life that's completely surrendered to Jesus Christ and change the world through it. And here's my conviction this morning. It might as well be you. Why not? It might as well be you right now, right here. Might as well be you. Let me invite you to bow your heads this morning if you would.